This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Preface What is Narrative Economics? When I was a 19-year-old undergraduate at the University of Michigan over half a century ago, my history professor, Shaw Livermore, assigned a short book by Frederick Lewis Allen titled Only Yesterday, An Informal History of the 1920s, about the run-up to the 1929 stock market crash and the beginnings of the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was a bestseller when it was published in 1931. After reading it, I came to believe that the book was extremely important, for it not only described the lively atmosphere and massive speculative booms of the Roaring Twenties, but also illuminated the causes of the Great Depression, the biggest economic crisis ever to hit the world economy. It struck me that this period's history of rapid-fire, contagious narratives somehow contributed to the changing spirit of the times. For example, Allen wrote an eyewitness account of the spread of narratives throughout 1929, just before the stock market peaked. Quote, Across the dinner table, one heard fantastic stories of sudden fortunes. A young banker who had put every dollar of his small capital into Niles Bement Pond and now was fixed for life. The story of a widow who had been able to buy a large country house with her winnings in Kennecott. Thousands speculated, and one too, without the slightest knowledge of the nature of the company upon whose fortunes they were relying, like the people who bought Seaboard Airline under the impression that it was an aviation stock. Seaboard Airline was a railroad, so named in the 19th century when airline meant the shortest conceivable path between two points. End quote. These narratives sound a bit fanciful, but they were repeated so often that they were hard to ignore. It couldn't have been so easy to get rich, and the most intelligent people in the 1920s must have realized that. But the opposing narrative, which would have pointed out the folly of get-rich-quick schemes, was apparently not so contagious. After I read Allen's book, it seemed to me that the trajectory of the stock market and the economy as well as the onset of the Great Depression, must have been tied to the stories, misperceptions, and broader narratives of the period. But economists never took Allen's book seriously, and the idea of narrative contagion never entered their mathematical models of the economy. Such contagion is the heart of narrative economics. In today's parlance, stories of fabulously successful investors who were not experts in finance went viral. Like an epidemic, they spread from person to person, through word of mouth, at dinner parties and other gatherings, with help from telephone, radio, newspapers, and books. ProQuest News and Newspapers, which allows online search of newspaper articles and advertisements back to the 1700s, shows that the phrase, go viral, and variations, going viral, went viral, gone viral, first appeared as an epidemic in newspapers only around 2009, typically in connection with stories about the internet. The associated term viral marketing goes back only a little further, to 1991, as the name of a small company in Nagpur, India. Today, as a ProQuest search reveals, the phrase going viral itself has gone viral. 
Google Ngrams, which allows users to search for words and phrases in books all the way back to the 1500s, shows a similar trajectory for Go Viral. Since 2009, Trending Now, which is a synonym for going viral, has also gone viral. These epidemics were helped along by the prominent statistics displayed on internet sites about numbers of views or likes. Both going viral and trending now characterize the rising part of the infective's curve when the ec epidemic is growing. There isn't as much popular attention to the process of forgetting, the later falling part of the infectious curves, though for economic narratives, that will likely be as important a cause of changes in economic behavior. Allen was thinking in terms of stories going viral when he wrote his book, though he did not use the term. He wrote about his, quote, emphasis upon the changing state of the public mind and upon the sometimes trivial happenings with which it was preoccupied, end quote. But he did not formalize his thinking about the contagion of narratives. We need to incorporate, incorporate the contagion of narratives into economic theory. Otherwise, we remain blind to a very real, very palpable, very important mechanism for economic change, as well as a crucial element for economic forecasting. If we do not understand the epidemics of popular narratives, we do not fully understand changes in the economy and in economic behavior. There is an extensive medical literature on forecasting disease epidemics and their relation to contagion factors can help us forecast better than those using purely statistical methods. Narrative economics. What's in a phrase? The phrase narrative economics has been used before, though rarely. R. H. Inglis's pa Inglis Palgrave's Dictionary of Political Economy from 1894 contains a brief mention of narrative economics but the term appears to refer to a research method that presents one's own narrative of historical events. I am concerned not with presenting a new narrative, but rather with studying other people's narratives of major economic events, the popular narratives that went viral. In using the term narrative economics, I focus on two elements. One, the word-of-mouth contagion of ideas in the form of stories, and two, the efforts that people make to generate new contagious stories or to make stories more contagious. First and foremost, I want to examine how narrative contagion affects economic events. The word narrative is often synonymous with story, but my use of the term reflects a particular modern meaning given in the Oxford English Dictionary. Quote, a story or representation used to give an explanatory or justificatory huh, account of a society, period, etc., end quote. Expanding on this definition, I would add that stories are not limited to simple chronologies of human events. A story may also be a song, joke, theory, explanation, or plan that has emotional resonance and that can easily be conveyed in casual conversation. We can think of history as a succession of rare big events in which a story goes viral, often, but not always, with the help of an attractive celebrity, or even a minor celebrity or fictional stock figure, whose attachment to the narrative adds human interest. For example, narratives from the second half of the 20th century describe free markets as efficient and therefore impervious to improvement by government action. 
These narratives in turn led to a public reaction against regulation. There are, of course, legitimate criticisms of regulation as practiced then, but those criticisms were usually not powerfully viral. Viral narratives need some personality and story. One such narrative involved movie star Ronald Reagan, who became a household name as the witty and charming narrator of the highly popular U.S. television show General Electric Theater from 1953 to 1962. After 1962, he entered politics in support of free markets. Reagan was elected president of the United States in 1980. In the 1984 re-election, he won every state except his opponent's home state. Reagan used his celebrity to launch a massive free markets revolution whose effects, some good and some ill, are still with us today. Contagion is strongest when people feel a personal tie to an individual in or at the root of the story, whether a stock personality type or a real celebrity. For example, the narrative that Donald J. Trump is a tough, brilliant dealmaker and a self-made billionaire is at the core of an economic narrative that led to his unlikely election of U as U.S. president in 2016. Celebrities sometimes concoct their own narratives, as in the case of Trump, but in many cases, the celebrity's name is merely added to an older, weaker narrative to increase its contagion, as in the story of the self-made man told many times over, each with a different celebrity. I discuss many celebrity-based narratives throughout this book. Narrative economics demonstrates how popular stories change through time to affect economic outcomes, including not only recessions and depressions, but also other important economic phenomena. The idea that house prices can only go up attaches to the stories of rich house flippers seen on television. The idea that gold is the safest investment attaches to stories of war and depression. These narratives have a contagious element, even if their attachment to any given celebrity is tenuous. Ultimately, narratives are major vectors of rapid change in culture, in zeitgeist, and in economic behavior. Sometimes, narratives merge with fads and crazes. Savvy marketers and promoters then amplify them in an attempt to profit. In addition to, power, to popular narratives, there are also professional narratives shared among communities of intellectuals that contain complex ideas that subtly affect broader social behavior. One such professional narrative, the random walk theory of speculative prices, holds that prices in the stock market incorporate all information, thus implying that attempts to beat the market are futile. This narrative has an element of truth to it, as professional narratives generally do, though there is now a professional literature that finds imperfections not predicted by the theory. Occasionally, these professional narratives translate into popular narratives, but the public often distorts these narratives. For example, one distorted narrative states that a buy-and-hold strategy in the domestic stock market is the best investment decision. That narrative conflicts with the personal canon, sorry, the professional canon, despite the popular idea that the buy-and-hold strategy comes from scholarly research. Like the popular interpretation of the random walk, some distorted narratives have an economic impact for generations. As with any kind of historical reconstruction, we cannot go back in time with a sound recorder 
to capture the conversations that created and spread the narratives, so we have to rely on indirect sources. However, we can now capture the arc of contemporary narratives, th narratives through social media and other tools, such as Google Ngrams. Better forecasts of major future events. Most contemporary economists tend to think that public narratives are not our field. If you press them, they might suggest you check with other departments of the university, such as the journalism and sociology departments. But scholars in these other fields often find it difficult to tread in the land of economic theory, thus leaving a gap between the study of narratives and their effects on economic events. No economist gave a credible forecast of the worldwide nature of the Great Depression of the 1930s before it happened, and only a handful predicted the peak of the U.S. housing boom in 2005, or the Great Recession of 2007 through 2009. Some economists in the late 1920s argued that prosperity would reach new heights in the 1930s, while others argued the extreme opposite. Unemployment would remain high forever because labor-saving machinery would permanently replace jobs. But there seems to have been no public economic forecast of the actual events, a decade of very high unemployment and then a return to normal. Traditionally, economists who study data have excelled in creating abstract theoretical models and in analyzing short-run economic data. They can accurately forecast macroeconomic changes a couple quarters into the future, but for the past half century, their one-year forecasts have been on the whole worthless. When assessing the probability that quarterly United States GDP growth will be negative one year in the future, their predictions have no relation to actual subsequent negative growth rates. There have been, according to a Fathom Consulting study, 469 recessions declined or defined as a decline in a country's GDP over a year, in 194 countries forecasted since 1988 by the International Monetary Fund in its biannual World Economic Outlook. In only 17 of these did they forecast a recession in the preceding year. They predicted recessions that did not occur 47 times. One might think that this forecasting record is good relative to that of weather forecasting, which is accurate for only a few days. But in economic decisions, people typically think years ahead. They plan to send children to high school or college for four years and take out 30-year home mortgages. So it is natural to suppose that we would sometimes know that the next few years will be strong or weak. Maybe economic forecasters are doing the best they ever could do, but it seems that with economic events coming again and again for no apparent cause, it would be a time to think whether economic theory could stand some fundamental improvement. It is rare to see a professional economist, in interpreting the past or forecasting the future, quoting what a business person or newspaper writer thinks is going on, let alone what a taxi driver thinks. But to understand a complex economy, we have to take into account many conflicting popular narratives and ideas relevant to economic decisions, whether the ideas are valid or fallacious. Hmm. Criticism of traditional approaches to macroeconomic research is not new. 
In a famous 1947 article, Measurement Without Theory, economist Jalen Koopmans criticized the then-standard approach of looking exclusively at statistical properties of time-series data, like GNP, or interest rates to find leading indicators to help in forecasting. He asked for theories based on actual observations of underlying human behavior. Quote, These economic theories are based on evidence of a different kind than the observations embodied in time series. Knowledge of the motives and habits of consumers and of the profit-making objectives of business enterprise, based partly on introspection, partly on interview, or on inferences from observed actions of individuals, Briefly, a more or less systematized knowledge of man's behavior and its motives. End quote. In short, as Koopmans pointed out, traditional economic event approaches fail to examine the role of public beliefs in major economic events, that is, narrative. By incorporating an understanding of popular narratives into their explanations of economic events, economists will become more sensitive to such influences when they forecast the future. In doing so, they will give policymakers better tools for anticipating and dealing with these developments. Indeed, my argument in this book is that economists can best advance their science by developing and incorporating into it the art of narrative economics. The following chapters lay the groundwork for bringing science and art together in a more robust economics. The Moral Imperative of Anticipating Economic Events Ultimately, the objective of forecasting is to intervene now to change future outcomes for society's benefit. In his 1969 presidential address to the American Economic Association, Kenneth Boulding another teacher who influenced me at the University of Michigan, said that economics should be considered a moral science in that it is concerned with human thought and ideals. He inveighed against, quote, a doctrine that might be called the immaculate conception of the indifference curve, that is, that tastes are simply given and that we cannot inquire into the process by which they are formed. This doctrine is literally for the birds, whose tastes are largely created for them by their genetic structures, and can therefore be treated as a constant in the dynamics of bird societies, end quote. Economics, Boulding says, creates the world it is investigating. Often we don't want to forecast, but to warn. We don't ever want to forecast a disaster. We want to take actions that will prevent the disaster from happening. Newspaper accounts of central bank actions such as the routine raising or lowering of interest rates, seem to reflect the assumption that the exact amount and timing of these actions are of central importance, rather than the words and stories that accompany them. Irving Kristol, writing in 1977, expresses the typical economist's view succinctly, dismissing public opinion polls purporting to measure business confidence. Quote, It is all supremely silly. Business confidence as represented by the willingness to invest in new plant and equipment, is not a psychological phenomenon, but an economic one. It is what Mr. Carter and what Mr. Burns do that counts, not what they say. John Maynard Keyes may have believed, and some of his disciples obviously still believe, that the propensity to invest is governed by the high or low animal spirits that prevail among businessmen. 
But then, Keynesian economics have always had a poor opinion of the intelligence of, biz of businessmen, whom they represent as temperamental children, to be pa paternalistically managed. What governs business confidence are the prospects for profitable investment. That and nothing else. Not what the president says, not what the executive says, not what anyone else says. End quote. Kristall does not identify the economic forces that operate independently of stories to produce economic crises. He does, however, hint at the politicization of economics when he argues that economists insult businessmen's intelligence when they try to describe less than optimizing business behavior. Many economists have learned that it pays to flatter business people whose support is useful to economists' careers. Describing the economy as driven only by abstract economic forces suggests that the economy operates in a moral vacuum, that there is no criticism of their leadership. John Maynard Keyes, Narrative Economist Kristall's dismissal of opinion polls notwithstanding, some of the most famous economic forecasts in world history appear to be based substantially on observations of narratives and worries about their human consequences. In his 1919 book, Economic Consequences of the Peace, Cambridge economist John Maynard Keyes predicted that Germany would become deeply embittered by the heavy reparations imposed by the Versailles Treaty, ending World War I. Keyes, or Keynes was not the only person to make such a prediction at the end of the war. For example, the pacifist Jane Addams led a, led a campaign for compassion for the defeated Germans. But Keynes tied his argument to evidence about economic reality. Germany was indeed unable to pay the reparations, and he was correct about the dangers of forcing Germany to pay. Keynes predicted how Germans would likely interpret the reparations and the associated clause in the treaty, asserting that Germany was guilty of war crimes. Keynes's insight exemplifies narrative economics because it focuses on how people would interpret the story of the Versailles Treaty, given their economic conditions. It was also a forecast because he warned, amidst a cheap melodrama of foreign policy in 1919, about a war to come. Quote, if we aim deliberately at the impoverishment of Central Europe, vengeance, I dare predict, will not limp. Nothing can then delay for very long that final civil war between the forces of reaction and the despairing convulsions of revolution, before which the horrors of the late German war will fade into nothing, and which will destroy, whoever is victor, the civilization and the progress of our generation. End quote. Keynes was right. World War II began amidst lingering anger 20 years later and cost 62 million lives. His warning was grounded in economics and tied to a sense of economic proportion. But Keynes was not talking about pure economics as we understand it today. His words, vengeance and despairing convulsions of revolution, suggest narratives filled with moral underpinnings, reaching to the deeper meaning of our activities. From irrational exuberance to narrative economics. This book is the capstone of a train of thought that I have been developing over much of my life. It draws on works that I and my colleagues, notably George Akerlof, have done over decades, 
culminating in my presidential address, Narrative Economics, before the American Economic Association in 2017, and my Marshall Lectures at Cambridge University in 2018. This book makes a broad attempt at, synth at synthesizing the ideas in all these works, linking these ideas to epidemiology, the branch of science concerned with the spread of diseases, and putting forth the notion that thought viruses are responsible for many of the changes we observe in economic activities. The story of our times and of our personal lives is constantly changing, thereby changing how we behave. The insights into narrative economics presented in this book dovetail with recent advances in information technology and social media because these are the conduits through which stories travel the globe and go viral in milliseconds and which have profound effects on economic behavior. However, this book also examines a long span of history in which communications were slower, when stories were repeated via telephone and telegraph, and via newspapers delivered by truck or train. The book is divided into four parts. Part 1 introduces basic concepts, drawing from research in fields as diverse as medicine and history, and offering two examples of narratives that readers will recognize. First, the Bitcoin narrative, whose epidemic began in 2009, and two, the Laffer Curve narrative, which went viral mostly in the 1970s and 1980s. Part two of the book provides a list of propositions to help guide our thinking about economic narratives and to help prevent errors in such thinking. For example, many people do not realize that perennial narratives may undergo a process of mutation that renews once strong stories and makes them strong again. Part 3 examines nine perennial narratives that have proved their ability to influence important economic decisions, such as narratives about others' confidence, or about frugality, or job insecurity. Part 4 looks to the future, with some thoughts about where narratives are taking us at this point in history, and what kind of future research could improve our understanding of them. Following Part 4 is an appendix, that relates the analysis of narratives to the medical theory of disease epidemics. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.